And again, if you have your Bibles, Habakkuk chapter 3, we want to look at verses 1 through 7 tonight. Habakkuk's prayer, part 1, is what I've entitled the message here. And as you'll note on the screen, uh, the theme of this book is the just shall live by faith. We say, boy, that that keeps coming up in uh, Romans chapter 1, in Galatians chapter 3, in Hebrews chapter 10. The just shall live by faith. Major theme in the New Testament. Where do we get it? Well, we find it in this Old Testament book. Uh, the idea of the just shall live by faith is not just a New Testament concept, right? Where does it really go back to? Where, where do we really find this emphasis on uh, justification by faith? Where, where, where's kind of really the first reference we find to that, as far as that particular emphasis? Well, we go back to Abraham, right? Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. But as we work our way through the book, uh, we are here down in the last section. We've seen the first question of Habakkuk, God's answer. Habakkuk's second question, God's second answer. And now Habakkuk's vision and prayer in chapter 3. Well, Habakkuk was a believer, and that's a good thing because he was a prophet, you know. Uh, if, if you're a prophet and you're not a believer, what, can, what, what are you? Yeah, you're a false prophet. He was a true prophet. He was a true believer, but he had a problem. Uh, first, he couldn't understand the seeming inactivity of God in reference to his own people who were corrupt and, and violent. It's like, God, I'm praying about this. You're not doing anything. How can you just let this go on? It bothered him. And then God shocked him by telling him, oh yeah, I'm, I'm active. I'm doing something. Uh, I'm preparing to do a work, he says, quote, which you would not believe though it were told you, Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 5. This work that God was preparing to do was raising up Babylon to judge his people, Judah. Now that really astounded the prophet Habakkuk. He wondered how in the world this could be. How could a holy God use an instrument more wicked, that is Babylon, to punish a people less wicked, that is his own people, Judah? Well, God then revealed that in due time, he would also destroy Babylon. He was going to bring discipline, judgment on his people, Judah. But then he was going to turn around ultimately and destroy Babylon, as we have noted in chapter 2. Well, now in chapter 3, we have Habakkuk's response. It comes as a prayer, which in form is really more like a poetic psalm or a poetic song. Scholars call Habakkuk chapter 3 one of the finest pieces of Hebrew poetry in the Old Testament. And uh, we could break it down this way. Uh, We're looking at the first section tonight, outline of chapter 3. 1 through 7, praise for God's past deliverance of Israel. That is really awesome. Man, this is some good stuff here when you get into it, which I hope to do with you tonight. And then uh, verses 8 through 15, praise God for his displays of delivering power, kind of building, same theme. And then at the end of the, the book, praise resolve. He resolves to praise while waiting for deliverance. So there's what we're look, that's what we're looking at in chapter 3. Well, let's pick it up. Uh, chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet Shiganoth. Can we say it together? Shiganoth. <laughs> it's not a word you use every day, is it? Probably not. At least I, I'm pretty... It's an obscure word. Uh, it appears elsewhere only in Psalm 7, the heading for Psalm 7. It comes from a word meaning to reel to and fro. And therefore, some scholars think it denotes an erratic song of great emotion and passion. You know what I thought of that? I kind of thought, well, that sounds kind of like some modern music. <laughs> a little bit, right? 
an erratic song of great emotion and passion? Therefore, it seems Shiganoth has some sort of musical significance, even though it's a little obscure as far as what the exact meaning is. Moody Bible Commentary says, A Shiganoth is a musical notation, meaning an energetic, passionate song with rapid changes of rhythm. So That seems to be the, the emphasis here. David Levy says, <clears throat> Habakkuk, filled with great excitement, reeled back and forth, praising God in triumphant song as he contemplated the Lord's victory over Judah's enemies. Again, even though it's titled as a prayer, it is more like a hymn of praise. Verse 2. O Lord, I, ha- I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. The speech or report Habakkuk refers to in this context probably has God's revelation in chapter 1, 5 through 11, and in chapter 2, verses 2 through 20 in view, related to his plans for Judah and Babylon. That's really what he covers. God's disciplinary plans for Judah, chapter 1, God's judgment plans for Babylon, chapter 2. Well, he heard this, and he says he, when he heard it, he was afraid. He was afraid. It made him afraid. In chapter 1, remember he cried out for justice. But when God revealed what he was actually going to do, he was astounded by the severity of it all. How often do people cry out to God to do something, but if we were able to see what God is really about to do, it would probably overwhelm us. In the grace period that precedes judgment. And that's normally the way God works. He gives some grace. He gives space. But in that grace period that precedes judgment, it's easy to wonder why God is not doing something. But then when he actually moves in judgment, it is a devastating reality. Be careful what you wish for. I mean, here he's, he's wanting God to do something. God says, okay, I'm getting ready to do something. Oh, no, not that. Verse 2 now goes on to present the only petition. You know, we, we call this whole chapter, really, the, the prayer of Habakkuk. But this is really the only petition, verse 2. The only petition in the entire prayer is verse 2, where he asks for three things. Number one, that God would revive his work. Number two, that he would make it known. And number three, that in wrath, God would remember mercy. Let's talk about that word revive for a minute. He says, oh, Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. Uh, Revive means to make alive or to preserve. The big picture working view is God's work of disciplinary judgment on Judah, followed by the promise of restoration, and his destroying work of judgment on Babylon. Now, the emphasis on revive here seems to be Habakkuk's desire that God would ultimately restore his people in keeping with his mighty works in the past. By the way, this exact word revive is found in Psalm 85, 6, where in the context it is a, is a prayer for uh, Israel's restoration as God is gathering them back, regathering from the Babylonian captivity. And so it's that idea of God restoring his people. So yes, Habakkuk accepts the reality of coming discipline, but he ultimately looks forward to the restoration uh, that God will bring And he petitions for God to make it happen. When he says, in the midst of the years make it known, the implication seems to be that in the midst of Judah's punishment, that God would make them know the truth of his coming deliverance. You know, if you know relief is coming, 
it gives you hope and strength to carry on. And he seems to be praying for that. Lord, uh, in, in the midst of the years, make it known. May, may we understand what you're revealing to me that ultimately we're going to come through this. So in effect, he was praying that Israel would once again know of God's renewed involvement on their behalf. Well, in essence, Habakkuk's prayer was that God would revive his work, meaning accomplish his purposes and make it known, provide understanding in the process. And then Habakkuk makes a plea that God in wrath would remember mercy. It's an interesting line. It's kind of a classic line. In wrath, remember mercy. It is a recognition that indeed God must judge his people, as he has indicated here in the context. But at the same time, he's pleading that in that process, God would also be merciful. In wrath, remember mercy. You see, even when God judges his people, there is still mercy in the mix. And it's for this reason that Habakkuk could speak this way of his people as he did in chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, Remember what he said there? He said, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Well, that's an interesting statement. Uh, We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment, referring to his people. O rock, you have marked them for correction. Yes, they would experience God's wrath, his punishment. And yet, because of his mercy, they would not perish as a people. Yes, they had an appointment with judgment, but the end goal was correction, not destruction. Mercy speaks of compassion and pity. Even though God brings judgment on his people, yet he still cares about them. Even then, he has deep feelings of compassion and concern. Recall that when God's wrath, his judgment, did finally come to Judah, and they were taken into captivity, it was a horrendous time. We got a special book in the Old Testament, a short little book, but really deals with blow by blow what happened in relationship to Babylonian captivity. And that book is the book of crying aloud, the book of lamentations, lamentations. David Levy kind of summarizes the book. Every wall and home had been broken down and the temple had fallen. The bodies of the young and the old filled the streets to overflowing, lamentations too. The hunger was unbelievable. Babies died from thirst. Young and old alike combed the streets, begging for a morsel of food. Mothers even boiled their own children and ate them. Lamentations chapter 4. It's it's really quite a horrendous... Thankfully, it's a short book. But it's unbelievable what that people went through in that process. And yet, in the middle, in the right, in the middle of Lamentations, we have some of the most wonderful verses in the Bible. And you know which verses they are, Right? Uh, Lamentations 3, 22, 23. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You see, in wrath, God remembered mercy in the sense that they as a people were preserved. We are not consumed. There was still mercy. Because of his mercies, they were not consumed. It was bad, but it could have been worse. If the wrath of God was not tempered, they would have been totally destroyed. How merciful of God to temper his wrath with mercy. Indeed, in wrath, he still remembers mercy. Verse 3, he's got those three petitions that he makes in verse 2, but now he begins to recall uh, the greatness of the God of Israel. In relationship to how God has worked in relationship to Israel in the past. 
And he says in verse 3, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. Here in verses 3 through 7, Habakkuk recounts God's great past deliverance of his people in the Exodus and his preservation of them as he brought them out to the land of promise. And really, where Habakkuk is going with this is that the history of Israel has revealed God's great reviving power. And so they can expect it again. So he remembers what God has done in the past on behalf of his people Israel. Now let's talk about this for a moment. God comes from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. What in the world are we talking about, right? What are we talking about? Well, that's a good question. Uh, Teman was the area named after the grandson of Esau. was in uh, uh, the territory of Edom. It was an Edomite city. Uh, Mount Paran was located in the Sinai Peninsula. And uh, this area in general refers to the location closely related to Mount Sinai. So what is in view here is a poetic description of God's revelation of himself at Mount Sinai. And what happened at Mount Sinai? Well, there it was, as God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus, that he met with them and entered into covenant relationship with them and gave the Ten Commandments to them there at Mount Sinai. It was, it was a covenant meeting with God, uh, with, with Israel. Now, uh, Warren Wearsby says, according to some scholars, Mount Paran is another name for the entire Sinai Peninsula or for Mount Sinai itself. In this song, Habakkuk seems to be retracing the march of Israel from Sinai to the promised land. That does seem to be the progression. He's thinking in relationship to the Exodus and their meeting with God at, at Sinai and then how God leads them on from there. So let's talk about uh, this for just a moment here. Um, so we're uh, down in this area. Uh, these are not certain. Teman, uh, scholars think in this area here. Other scholars might put it somewhere else, like up here, over here. Uh, Paran, you know, but we're talking in this area here. By the way, Mount Sinai, traditionally, they believe it's down here in the, in the Sinai Peninsula. But some now think it maybe was over here. Again, we don't really know for, we, we generally know in that area, but exactly where we're not sure. But what I want to emphasize with you is we're going to see this whole area is really being talked about. This whole area. And so keep that in mind. That's a large area that we're talking about in, in our text tonight. Uh, Moses said that the Lord's appearance was like a light shining from Sur and from Mount Paran. By the way, Sur is, again, over here. Uh, in this area here, Mount Sir. But uh, I want you to see what Moses says in Deuteronomy 33, 2. And he said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Sir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. That's the very place that Habakkuk names. And he came with ten thousands of saints. From his right hand came a fiery law for them. This verse here in Deuteronomy is a clear indication that Habakkuk is addressing the phenomenon related to God meeting with his people at Mount Sinai. 
That event was so great that evidently the entire area was lighted with the, with the glory of God in a supernatural display of God's glory. Now, when he says here uh, in verse uh, 3, God came from Teman, uh, the Holy One from Mount Paran. So we're talking about that area down there that we talked about. Uh, Selah. Then it says, His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of praise. Selah is a musical connotation uh, that most everyone thinks, in, everybody pretty much agrees, involves a pause, a pause of some sort. Elsewhere, it is found only in the Psalms. Find it here and in the Psalms. And it's found 71 times in the Psalms. So there's a lot of... And, and you need to read uh, uh, Selah when you come to it in the Psalms. You don't skip over it or you have completely violated the spirit of the text, right? There's supposed to be a pause there. <laughs> and then you just want to wait a little bit too. Selah, no, you, you, you want to be a little pause there. Uh, as I say, uh, the term literally means to exalt or to lift up. Uh, I got this from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. Let's look at it. Uh, Sila. Uh, it may mean a pause to elevate to a higher key or increase the volume. B, to reflect on what has been sung and exalt the Lord in praise, which is generally what we tend to think. Uh, C, to lift up certain instruments for something like a trumpet fanfare. So, uh, you know, it's like, okay, it's a pause, a dramatic pause of some kind. Uh, what exactly is the sense is, is somewhat <laughs> debated a little bit and a little unclear. But notice, uh, Selah, his glory covered the heavens. Pause, dramatic pause. His glory covered the heavens and the earth was full of his glory. Evidently, when God appeared to his people on Mount Sinai, the whole vast area south of the Dead Sea was lit up with his glory. This was not just a little happening in a little rural area that only the Israelites had, took note of. I don't think so. I think this was, a, this was a big theater for the glory of God. And I believe that this whole area down in here, we're talking about this area being described, this area, and, and way, way out here even, this, this whole area. So if Mount Sinai, the tradition, if this was it down here, or if it was over here, I think this whole area is being lit up with the glory of God uh, in this, uh, in the, on this occasion. Uh, note a couple of references here. In uh, Exodus 19.18 we read, Now Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked greatly. The whole mountain is quaking greatly. Not, not just a little tremor. It was shaking greatly. I don't know if you've ever been involved in earthquakes. You know, we even had a little earthquake around here years ago, but it's just a little tremor type thing. But people have been involved in major earthquakes. It's, it's terrifying. Um, I remember a, a pastor friend, his daughter was out in California and they had a major earthquake. Scared her so bad she got on the plane and came home. That was it. She was done with California. <laughs> well, this mountain, uh, the whole mountain quaked greatly, it says in, in 1918, Exodus 1918. And then Deuteronomy 4.11, Then you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the midst of heaven, with darkness, cloud, and thick darkness. You know, there's no way to really imagine what that looked like, but it was an awesome, awesome scene, that's for sure. Well, God's glory radiated throughout the heavens and his praise, that is his fame, went forth throughout the earth. 
On a footnote here at this point, Muslim scholars claim that Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 3, is a reference to the uh, coming of the prophet Muhammad. Uh, coming from Arabia, which they want to tie then to Deuteronomy 33 to as well. The problem is that Paran is not even close to Mecca, where Muhammad came from. Uh, is, is hundreds of miles away from that. Uh, furthermore, the verse is clearly talking about God, not Muhammad. It plainly says God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. The glory and praising view is clearly that which relates to God, not Muhammad. Verse 4, he continues the thought. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand. And there his power was hidden. It was an awesome phenomenon. The brightness of God's light with his light, his lightning rays flashing is the picture here. And yet this was just merely a small sample of his power, which remained largely hidden. Notice it talks about the the brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand. And there his power is hidden. Didn't still really see the power of God. What? The mountain is quaking greatly. Lightning flashing all over the place. The whole mountain is on fire. And his power is hidden. What would it be if it was revealed? Wow. And there his power was hidden? Seriously? Wow. Uh, Psalm 18 speaks of this experience as well. It says in Psalm 18, verse 9, He bowed the heavens also, came down with darkness under his feet, and rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. We really believe this is a description of this phenomenon related to uh, Mount Sinai. Well, the exodus that led the Hebrews to Mount Sinai was marked by God demonstrating his power in plagues that he brought upon Egypt, including that of pestilence. And so he says in verse 5, Before him went pestilence, and fever followed at his feet. Pestilence here evidently refers to some type of disease which was accompanied by a burning fever. Never forget who is Lord of the pestilence. It is Yahweh, the God of Israel. ESV study Bible says pestilence and plague are often used as pictures of divine judgment. And that's true. Verse 6. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Again, I think we're in the context he's bringing his people out of Egypt and he's bringing them to the promised land where he's going to drive these nations out of the promised land before his people. But notice the descriptive, the kind of poetic descriptive language here. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. Picturesque language is being used here to make a point. God is pictured as measuring the earth for judgment, in effect. The nations are portrayed as startled and trembling at the mere glance of God. Did you see that? He stood and measured the earth. He looked, he looked and startled the nations. 
The nations are pictured as being startled and trembling at the mere glance of God. He looks and the nations are startled. He looks and the so-called everlasting mountains are scattered and the hills are bowed down. They come crumbling down. David Levy says, The mountains and hills, symbols of stability and permanence, although having been in existence since creation, will crumble at his gaze. Nothing will stand before God, neither nations nor nature. The approach of God is awesomely terrible. Here he comes with great glory and great power. Everything trembles and crumbles before him. God's greatness is inconceivable and defies full explanation. Earthquakes in the Bible are often associated with God's power being put on display. And we know in, in the final day, the day of the Lord, Isaiah 2, in the book of Revelation 16 and so forth, uh, we're, we're talking earthquakes that shake the entire world. And it will be shaking like, and, and reeling like a, a drunkard, as it says in Isaiah chapter 2. Awesome. Everything trembles and crumbles before him. The mountains and hills are symbolized as everlasting, but obviously they are not as seen in their crumbling at God's gaze. In contrast, the end of verse 6 says, His ways are everlasting. Isn't that kind of, you got uh, some interesting poetry here. The everlasting mountains are scattered. They're not so everlasting. But His ways are everlasting. Truly, God is eternal and His ways are eternal. And the emphasis here is that because of who He is, what God did for Israel in the past... He can do in the future. Remember, his prayer is to revive Israel, to restore them. His ways are everlasting. He's not going anywhere. Looks like the Babylonians are taking over. Put your eyes a little higher, a little higher. Recognize who's the all-powerful one. Verse 7, I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. Evidently, Habakkuk is still carrying through on the phenomenon related to Mount Sinai. Though nomadic Bedouin people in these outlying regions were terrorized. Imagine being out there with this kind of phenomenon happening in your backyard. By the way, it is noteworthy that Moses' wife was from this region and is identified as being both Midianite and Cushite. And therefore, some think that, that Cush may have actually been a part of the territory of, of Midian. Again, it's not totally clear, but uh, we're talking uh, Cush down in this area here, Midian over here. Of course, uh, Moses, you know, that's where he was hanging out. He was running for his life for 40 years there. But, but anyway, uh, this area here, they would have had, you know, with that mountain on fire and all this phenomenon taking place, uh, they were trembling, as it says there in verse 7. Uh, Midian trembled. Well, Habakkuk is processing what God had revealed to him concerning coming judgment of both Judah and Babylon, as well as the ultimate restoration of Judah, as he prays for restoration, and that God in wrath would remember mercy. And then... He reflected on how God in the past, in relationship to Israel, has manifested his awesome glory. You say, how does Habakkuk get to the end of chapter 3? 
You know, he goes down there, he says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, nor the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, and though the flock be cut off from the fold, and there is no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will join the God of my salvation. How do you get there? How do you get there? Well, you get there by taking your eyes off of your immediate circumstances and putting them higher upon the God who controls everything, the sovereign God. And that's how you get there. He reflects back on how God in the past has worked in relationship to his people Israel, beginning with, with the birth of the nation as they came out of Exodus. Neither nations nor nature can stand before his presence. And his ways are everlasting. No wonder those people in the Sinai Peninsula at the time God appeared to his people on Sinai were in great trembling. Well, Habakkuk starts out the book questioning God. But after being reminded of what God is about to do, Habakkuk then reflects on the awesome greatness of God and what he has done in history already. Reminding him of the sovereign God that is the God of Israel. And he is the God who never changes. You know, the God of the Exodus is still the God of the moment. He's the God of the future. He is the eternal I am. What a great lesson. When we are tempted to wonder why things are the way they are, come back to the reality of who God is in all of his awesome, sovereign greatness. Come back to how he has clearly revealed himself in history and realize he doesn't change. His ways don't change. He's still the same God. His ways are everlasting. Now, theologians grapple with how to describe God. After all, the grandeur of God is incomprehensible. But some scholars who are considered to be kind of like the greatest theological minds in in the history of the church have described God in this way. Something than which nothing greater can be thought. Did you catch that? Something than which nothing greater can be thought. You can't have a great, you can't conceive of anything greater than God. How true that is, as Habakkuk focused on the greatness of God, his prayer quickly turned to praise and trust. This is the key to all the things that trouble us greatly. I don't care how great those things are that trouble you, God is greater. That's the message of Habakkuk. Focus on God and his greatness and everything will be put in its proper place. As you get the proper view of God. Indeed, he is after all something than which nothing greater can be thought. Indeed, how awesome is our God. Let's stand and have our closing song and then I'll close us in prayer.